everybody. Welcome back to Butter With That, a movie podcast where some friends from Philadelphia get together to talk about movies. Uh, this month, we have been talking about Doomsday movies. It's been pretty fun. We've covered a lot of ground and a lot of uh, different potential endings, all of which have been uh, really fun to talk about and really interesting. Uh, before we dive into this week's episode to round off that theme for the month, how's everybody doing? Anybody see anything cool lately? Rewatch Thor Ragnarok again. God, nice. that movie's so good. Yeah, that movie rules. It was the first. This is the. This is probably I think my third time seeing it, and just realizing how good the soundtrack is. Like I never. Yeah. Like I noticed it, but I never noticed <laughs> it, if that makes sense. Like in like in just the quieter, more mm. dialogue heavy scenes. Um, did we really talk? Sorry. Did we talk about uh, watching Paddington too? <laughs> no, we didn't. <laughs> so uh, we went to our friends uh, Nick and Brittany's house for a movie night, and it was three movies we could watch. Uh, so it was uh, Blindside, right? Is that the Sandra, uh, the Sandra Bullock, Bullock movie? movie? Nope. Blind spotting. <laughs> Fuck, blind spotting. Fuck, I knew I was going to say the wrong thing. Uh, the options were blind spotting. Uh, Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse and Nick's mystery movie. So we had to pick <laughs> Nick's mystery movie. We got some guesses. We got some guesses. Garrett, I think we were all supposed to have one. Garrett had like five. <laughs> um, it was Paddington 2, uh, which was fucking delightful. That movie was outstanding. It was wonderful. Had you seen Paddington 1? No. no. Oh. <laughs> Because I saw Paddington 1, and it was, yes, delightful. Also heard it was good. Yeah. yeah. Same cast. Uh, Brendan Gleeson is amazing as, it turned into a secret prison movie, which I didn't know it was going to no. be. Paddington ends up in prison. <laughs> and I then secret prison shit. Teaches uh, them, Ben. what's it, Ben Gleeson, right? Yeah, Brendan Gleeson. Brendan Gleeson, uh, who is the cook who always makes horrible food. He teaches him about marmalade and how to make delicious marmalade. Oh. And it changes all of their lives. And so like then like all of the prisoners and guards are happy. And mm -hmm. it's like really nice and, and wonderful. And um, um, fucking... Uh, Hugh Grant is in it. He he lives for this role. He, he committed up. so much to is this. Is he a movie. villain? He is. He is. He frames Paddington for robbery. How for dare theft. you? Whoa! How dare you? I know it's amazing. Hugh Grant is a villain. Gotta see he wears that. lots of disguises. Yeah, because he was like a he was a former actor. There's a, a fake dog food commercial he did where he's dressed as a dog and eats a spoonful of it. It's very funny. Um, and then uh, Ben Wishaw is the voice of Paddington, which, um, if you've ever seen Ben Wishaw in anything, he's a really, really wonderful actor. He's amazing. He's so good. Um, he was in, uh, I think, like, the most mainstream thing I've seen him in is he played Q in uh, one of the James Bond movies, oh, Skyfall. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's, he's really great. Um, he looks yeah. like Nicholas Holt. Kind yeah, he's, of, like, yeah. very, very adorable. Yeah. Um, but Paddington 2 was <laughs> delightful. Yeah. Um, the... Capaldi, Peter Capaldi has a great small supporting role as like the oh, yeah. community constable who like hates Paddington. Yeah, there's just a lot of Brits. Oh, um, the father in Downton Abbey is in it. Uh, the woman in, from The Shape of Water Sally is in Hawkins. it. Who ironically is uh, trying to swim to France in this movie. So <laughs> she really, she really loves the water. She dives into the water. Yeah. Oh man, She's Sally wonderful. Hawkins was in something recently that I watched and she died. Was it Godzilla? Godzilla. That's right. Spoilers. Spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> she means nothing in that film. Sorry. So two thumbs up for Paddington 2. Yeah. 
I saw a movie um, called Brigsby Bear, which I had never heard of, and then my friend recommended it, and it was a movie written uh, and directed by Kyle Mooney from SNL, and it was pretty good. I will not give away any of the plot details because there are twists and turns that I would have never expected from this movie. Does Sally Hawkins die in it? (laughs) Sally Hawkins may or may not die in this movie. I want to keep everyone at the edge of their seats, Um, but I would recommend it. Check it out. Uh, I think we watched it on Hulu, but uh, some great roles. Greg Kinnear is in it uh, as this actor, failed actor turned police detective uh, who wants, basically <laughs> Brigsby Bear is like this uh, chi- uh, this kid's uh, show star and Kyle Mooney's character is obsessed with this star, uh, this character and wants to recreate the show. Uh, and Mark That's Hamill is in it. Oh yeah, there you go. Uh, oh, you should really Google. Kyle Mooney's kind of doing what he does on SNL, kind of this like, kind of I, I can't even whatever. He he's kind of a one note comedian in my view, but he mm. makes it really work through the movie. Recommend. Hey, if it's a good note, if it's a sweet note, keep playing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't watch a new movie, but I had a really bad day last week, and so I put on my old faithful, which is What's Your Number, starring Chris Evans and Anna Faris. And you know what? Still just as good as I always remember it being. God bless that movie. You've really gotten me through some tough times. I think that'd be a good month theme, just as good as you remember it the last time. <laughs> Movies that you disassociate to, but still really love anyway. <laughs> What's Anna, Anna Ferris up to these days? She's doing Klondike commercials. Oh, okay. She's like also... Klondike the chocolate ice yeah. cream. I didn't even know there were still Klondike commercials. Like, <laughs> What would you do for a Klondike bar? She also is um, on a show. I don't know if the show's still on, but with Alice and Janney um, called Mother. Hmm. Oh, I remember Mother? when Question that first mark? came out and I saw like tr- like previews for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't watch it. Octavia Spencer is also in that show. She's it's great. Bananas. Cool. Well, speaking of bananas, um, <laughs> <laughs> we're about to talk about a movie that's uh, that's pretty bananas this week, as you guys know, and as we've mentioned before, this has been our Doomsday Month. Uh, so we've been covering a lot of ground as far as uh, different ways that the world could possibly come to an end. Some uh, fictional, some a little bit more steeped in realism. Um, so I chose uh, for the month a movie that uh, literally ends with uh, the atomic destruction of the world. Uh, the 1964 Stanley Kubrick picture, Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. So I first saw this movie, I guess, in high school and really, really liked it. Thought it was really funny. Uh, saw it again in college and gave it some more thought and, uh, and really enjoyed it again a second time. But then I kind of just hadn't revisited it in a couple years. Um, in lieu of doing this this month, I've, uh, rewatched it, I think, like six times. Wow. Um... So I'm really excited to talk about it, but um, I would love to hear first what you guys thought of the movie. I had also seen it in high school in like a film class and wrote about it for a film class, and mm-hmm. I remember liking it, but I feel like now that I am older, uh, a lot of the stuff makes more sense. It is funny. Um, I mean, I, I really enjoyed that movie the first time I saw it and definitely the second time. Yeah. I too saw it in high school. <laughs> I guess it's just like one of those things yeah. that uh, men of a certain age all want their students to watch. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I didn't like it the first time I saw it. And the second time, which was a couple nights ago, I went, huh, interesting. I liked it a little bit more. I'll cool. save that. There's a lot of interesting stuff that I was like, <laughs> I would not have really thought about this yeah. when I was in high school. Yeah. Yeah. How about it? 
Um, Christine? Um, yeah, I had seen it before, uh, and then rewatching it, I think the biggest takeaway I had after seeing it again was that it, a lot of what I love in the movies of uh, the director Armando Ian, Iannucci, who does like In the Loop, Death of Stalin, Ooh, right, like right. so many of the elements that I love in those movies, I can see either intentionally he drew from Doctor Strange Love, or just there's mm. just this evident uh, like crossover with uh, the themes, like sort of infantile politicians and mm-hmm. military people, arbitrary decisions that they make having huge impacts on like the rest of the world. And then sort of the insulated and silo worlds of like government and military bureaucracy and like how that basically fucks everyone over. And so I would think that he probably might've been drawing from Dr. Strangelove, mm-hmm. but um, yeah, just, just seeing movies that I've enjoyed uh, connect back to back to this movie. In but. the Loop was from a TV show too. It was, it, uh-huh. yeah, it was a TV show. What it's called? Um, Peter Capaldi's in both yes, of them. And yes, is really good. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, stuff he's written and directed. I've, I've heard Death of Solomon is great too, and I yeah, haven't seen it yet. It's really good. I just saw that for the first time like this past month, and mm-hmm. I I really loved it. That yeah. was really a striking balance between humor and uh, and a horrifying situation, which uh, kind of relates to this movie as well. Um, Connor, this is your first time seeing it. What do you this think? This is my first time seeing it. Yeah. Yeah. It's fine. I get it. I saw one review on Letterboxd. I gave it two stars on Letterboxd, everybody, all right? Just putting that there out there right now. There was a sea of five stars, maybe some four stars, <laughs> and then Connor's two stars sitting there, and I was like, whoa, what happened? <laughs> I One review said, I can admire this movie so much, but I can't love it. I think that's kind of where I fall on it. It's like I admire a lot of the like um, the way it was shot and the execution, the acting, but it just did not click with me at all. Hmm. Um, I think it's just like that's so much like our real world, (laughs) the way that these characters act. And it's like I get these people have like goofy names and they're doing really dumb things. And like the premier of Russia of the Soviet Union is like drunk on the phone. Like it's like that's just our real world, man. So it's just like a real bummer of a movie. And I don't know. It's just like it just didn't click with me like I think and I I don't know if it's because it's like a really famous movie that's like you have all these famous scenes and famous clips and number I think, 26 on the uh, the uh, AFI's uh, 100 greatest American films of all time mm-hmm. it kind of reminded me of what you were saying Sam about Alien mm-hmm. of sort of like it's been referenced so much in pop culture that it's like for me Doctor Strange Love is just like pop culture reference movie mm-hmm. and it was yeah. hard to kind of piece that away and appreciate it as like an original things set in like a very specific time talking about very specific things i think that's how i felt about citizen kane when i finally saw it and Mm -hmm. i was like oh this is that movie that everyone says is the best movie (laughs) (laughs) that i agree with too (laughs) it's like i don't get it i mean it it did make me be like whoa orson welles is a fucking amazing actor but like besides that i was like i was like "Ooh, shadows and that's it (laughs) when he fucks up that room though i do also really like that movie (laughs) so i am very curious to hear what you guys liked about it because maybe that, I don't know. Just but that initial takeaway was like I almost fell asleep during it. So okay, sorry. I knew I knew sorry. I knew it wasn't gonna land with somebody, and that's uh, that's okay. Um, I guess uh, we're, I'm gonna provide a really quick uh, really quick summary. If that's all right. Um, sorry, that didn't mean that, that did, I didn't mean for that to sound pointed. I just meant like in a room full of like you know. Four of or uh, five of us at our age, you know, probably wasn't going to click with somebody. That's okay. It's fine. If we ever do The Witch, I'm going to try to tear everyone apart that doesn't like The Witch. 
But the movie, um, for those of you who haven't seen it, and this is going to be loaded with spoilers, so um, this is just what's on the back of the uh, on the back of the DVD case if you want to turn it off uh, and go watch it, which I recommend. Um, it's free a, online. It is free online. Yeah, I found it on a, a what was oh. it a Vimeo? Vimeo. Link. Yeah, that was very yeah that was very easy to watch. Yeah. Which is like very very poor definition to be perfectly honest. Uh, I'm There's like a the, watermark in the top left corner. It's it's pretty just rough looking and kind of pixely. Uh, I mean, if you if you get an opportunity to watch like an actual like streaming copy or like a dvd or blu-ray check that out um but the back of the 40th anniversary dvd describes the film as stanley kubrick's black comedy classic about an accidental nuclear attack received four oscar nominations including best picture in 1964 um convinced the commies want to pollute america's quote precious bodily fluids a crazed general (laughs) uh sterling hayden uh orders a nuclear strike on the ussr uh, as his aide, Captain Mandrake, Peter Sellers, scrambles to unlock a recall code to prevent the bombing, the U.S. president, Sellers again, calls a drunken Soviet premier on a hotline claiming the proposed attack is all a silly mistake, while the president's advisor, an ex-Nazi scientist, Dr. Strangelove, Sellers once more, verifies the existence of a dreaded doomsday machine, a retaliatory device designed by the Soviets to end the human race once and for all. Um... So there's, uh, there's a lot that goes into that. I mean, the movie opens, interestingly enough, uh, with um, just this scrawl that basically uh, suggests as a comfort or as like almost a bomb that mm. like all of this has been uh, examined by like um, USAF officials and like our military and they assure us like none of this could, uh, could ever really happen. I had a question about that. With, did the movie have to include that? Because it was like, we assure you, the Air Force's responsibility uh-huh. is to protect the American people. Blah. It was like, did they have to have that at the beginning of the movie? Or was that one more el- sort of satirical element of the movie? I haven't been able to find proof one mm. way or the other. Interesting. Um, interesting. I tend to imagine that it was actually included on purpose. Um, it's humorous when you look at it. It is. It is. But I could also see... Yeah. Like mid nineteen sixties, I could see, I could see the government being like, "You have to yeah. put some kind of like like disclaimer disclaimer at the beginning." Yeah, but yeah, I, I I searched and searched, but I wasn't able to find confirmation one way or the other. But great way to open the movie, it really is, uh, especially with all that unfolds, because um, in essence, it's a movie where uh, one one lone eight. general has. Uh, has decided that he's convinced of this uh, so sinister Soviet plot, uh, which we'll get into his reasoning behind when we explore the themes a little bit. Um, but launches um, this sort of uh, this procedure that's been put in place uh, by the president and the military, suggesting that if the president were incapacitated and his Joint Chiefs of Staff were disabled, um, they would still be able to launch nuclear war if if it came to that. Um, so one general kicks this into action. Um, as a result, the planes are dispatched who are uh, reliant on a certain recall code if they are to uh, come back from their assigned targets over in the USSR. Um, no one else has access to these codes because he's barricaded himself in his uh, base and has ass- ordered his uh, subordinates to shoot at any forces that arrive. And then ultimately the film kind of uh, explores that from three different vantage points. It's um, the office in which General Jack D. Ripper, uh, the man who is uh, engaged um, this bomber wave, uh, and his, uh, his first in command, uh, Mandrake, as like played by British Sellers. officer. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's part of a, yeah, he's part of an exchange program, which actually evidently is a real thing. And then there's also the war room, where we're exposed to uh, the president dealing with his generals and uh, the Russian premier over the telephone. 
Um, and then another set that's the B-52 bomber set, which is the crew that is uh, tasked with performing the mission. Um, all that going uh, going on at the same time and uh, all lending different lenses and different uh, vantage points to the serious uh, situation, but all individually pretty laced with humor. So that being the case, before we get into like production notes or like character notes, which are pretty intertwined as far as performances and production go, um, does anybody have... Uh, any any favorite things about the movie, or uh, or or anything that they that stood out uh, to the contrary that they they didn't enjoy or that didn't land? Um, I mean, one of my favorite scenes in that movie is when the president is on the phone with the Russian the Russian premier premier who's Dmitry Kissoff. <laughs> yes, um, there. I was trying to find like a specific quote, and I can't find it yet. But their whole conversation is so fucking funny, yeah. and it's just like, like basically the world is about to be destroyed, and they're just like still like going like over these like little teeny things, like him not trying to offend him. It's like, oh well, I'm calling because of this. Uh, I mean, I am calling also because like, I just want to talk to you, but you know, I'm I'm calling you specifically because of this, and so of it's like, of course, I like to talk to you. <laughs> It's so good and just like so, I don't know, just feels like very real and like. And like, him yeah. repeating Dimitri's name yes. over and Dimitri, over again. Dimitri, yeah. Dimitri, you have to understand. Dimitri, come on, Dimitri. It's like he's, <laughs> yeah, calling up his old bud from the pub or yeah. something. Yeah. And then it's like pretty soon revealed that this doomsday device, like. They're, like, explaining what it does, how mm. it's possible that it can't even, um, even if they wanted to try to disarm it, that would actually make it worse, and that would make it go off itself. Right. Um, and so they're, like, discussing all this, and they're like, well, if you had this thing so powerful, why didn't you, like, tell anyone? Like, mm -hmm. that's something we should know. And they were like, we were about to announce it before this shit happened, and I was just right. like, that also seems like a thing that would definitely happen. <laughs> and the ambassador's like... You know how Dimitri loves surprises. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, you yeah. can see the premiere being like, it's going to be like my birthday party, but it's going to be a surprise to everybody else. <laughs> no, you're so talking about good. matters of literally life or death exactly, for the entire yeah. world. Not and he's like, just like Ooh, I'm your so friggin' to birthday this. party. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the part that like really made me want to hit my like forehead off the table is um, just the like the <laughs> juxtaposition between the people who are in the bomber planes versus like the people who are in the war room mm -hmm. because like you have all of these assholes who are like clearly paid like way too much money who are so highly educated but are so fucking dumb making yeah. all of these decisions mm -hmm. that are just going to impact the whole world <laughs> um, and they're like playing this stupid ass game of chess in or like kissing ass to that premier uh -huh. in Russia or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then you have fighting with his girlfriend on the phone. <laughs> yeah. Uh. And then and then you have like the I don't want to call them like bumblekins, but like kind of like that in the in the bombers. You know, like they're just like just working class soldiers. But yeah. extremely exceptional at what they do. Yeah, I mean yeah, they make yeah. it happen. <laughs> yeah, but he gives that like very like uh it's supposed to be this like you know, really powerful speech. Yeah, right. That is just like you're like, okay, like, <laughs> doesn't then, quite have the punch of like you know the war movie like Tom Hanks is like all right, yeah. you know? especially yeah. within the context too that like he's saying like oh boy, well guys when we when we pull this off, I'll tell you what we're gonna come back and we're all gonna be heralded as heroes. But like 
they're already under the established pretense that the United States has been like destroyed by nuclear bombs. Yeah. 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 And they're going to destroy yeah. the other opposing country. Like, where exactly do they imagine they're going to get these awards? And then he says, no matter what, like your race or your color, or, or like your creator. Yeah, yeah, you're still going to get this. And it was also so interesting that that was a part of that too. Mm-hmm. Like, you'd say like. Like, even if you're black, you're going to get this thing. And I was like, what is this moment? This also, is so awkward. James Earl Jones. James Earl Jones. Yeah, James Earl Jones. His first movie. It's so crazy. Was it his first movie? His first movie. So crazy. But but what I was kind of working on there was, this is exactly how it would turn out in like yeah. real life, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, the people who are really in danger and who are losing their lives are just, like, your average, everyday Americans. While the people who wouldn't necessarily have to worry too much are those Fucking assholes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The swamp. The swamp. Please, <laughs> God, kill me. This feels like a movie that pro-Trump people and anti-Trump people both look to as like this could be like, haha, look at those dumb smart intellectuals, and look at those dumb dumb military people. It's like both. I think both sides can see what they want to see out of it. That's what I was thinking while watching it. It is, yeah, That's very interesting. It is very much up to like uh, perception, I suppose. It does leave a lot of things open to interpretation as far as that kind of framing. Which is interesting. Mm. That's just what I was. <laughs> I was also thinking that Ripper was that the general's name? Mm-hmm. J- Jack, Jack, Jack D. Ripper. Jack D. is basically an anti-vaxer mm. with like the fluoride is like a Please, Russian conspiracy, the, the which was a very fluids. real concern right. at the time. Yeah, I know that was, that was that so conspiracy. funny when he's like going through like the purity his... of the fluids. Literally, kill me. What was that? Oh that man, I can't wait so to get back to that when we get into the themes. Yeah, I feel like I see where J.K. Simmons took all of his like. Expressions and things from yeah, that's so funny. Like the cigar in the mouth Mm -hmm. and the way that he talks. I was like, I feel like I can see J.K. Simmons using a lot of uh, who's Sterling Hayden's performance as Ripper. The names are so great in this. Oh yeah. I uh, yeah, uh, Turgidson played by George (laughs) C. (laughs) Scott. Um, Did anyone get the guano one? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, was like, I was like, oh my God, that's really funny. <laughs> Colonel Batshit is yep. in essence what his name is. Yep. Yeah, um, yeah I, I, I loved his performance. Sort of, I feel like his performance was like, kind of felt like a sort of stage clowning. Like every everything was kind of outsized as, he, like, as he's yelling in the, in the war room. And it, something feels not so like, realistic but like refreshingly just like like a clown like having this mm-hmm. tantrum fit in the war room and i i Mr. thought that President, was he's gonna see the big boy kind of fun <laughs> yeah it was kind of a fun th- like that made me laugh a lot performance to watch yeah. also like gentlemen you can't fight this is the war room. this is the war room <laughs> that line oh my god every time um, or or you know what you're, you know what's gonna happen to you if you can't get the president on the phone what you're going to have to answer to the Coca-Cola Corporation. <laughs> oh, we were talking about it on the way here. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. I love the board line and the line at the end where Turgenson is like, it's a, we're going to, something about the mine shafts. Like, they're like, oh, we can live in mine shafts. And it's like, it's a, oh, God, how does he phrase it? It's like a, a mine shaft arms racer, whatever. It's we like, don't want to have a mine shaft gap. Oh, mine right, shaft the mine gap. shaft gap, yeah. <laughs> Which is great because they bring up the, uh, the arms race gap, uh, the space gap, the peace gap. <laughs> like, it's hilarious. Um, yeah, there's a lot of stuff about this movie that really stands out to me. I mean, um, I guess, uh, chiefly among it, uh, the character of Mandrake is, is one of my favorite characters in, in it, really any movie I'm mm-hmm. realizing, um, because he's, he's the perfect vehicle for the audience. Like mm-hmm. he, he's right in the midst of like this dire situation, but like 
and has the understanding that like he's dealing with uh, Jack D. Ripper, General Ripper, who is at that point a madman who has him locked in a room with a gun. Um, even though the base is under siege, he's going on and on about these fluids, which again, we'll get back to. But um, just realizing that he's dealing with a maniac and trying to diplomatically, and like with this British like dry wit and like decorum, trying to like suss the code out of him to the point that like when he goes into the bathroom to shave, it's one of my favorite lines in the movie is just like, that's what you need, Jack. That'll do good for everybody. Just a little bit of water on the back of the neck and the code. <laughs> <laughs> It is interesting that the most, I guess, re like reasonable character, or the character that, as you mentioned, sort of has the audience align with, mm -hmm. is like a British character. Mm -hmm. And it's yeah. like, that's interesting that as it looks at, like geopolitical relationships, I'm like, the Brit, like the British <laughs> character being the one that seems the most rational and reasonable. I'm like, hmm, this is interesting. Yet they did film it in a studio in England. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. maybe they had to be. Mm -hmm. Positive. Sellers himself light. was uh, English. He's and, English, yeah. yeah. But I was like, all right, okay. <laughs> this might be a dumb question. Has Kubrick ever done another comedy? This is really kind of his only comedy. Okay, I was like thinking about that too, and I'm like, the only other war movie I can really like that always comes to head when I think of him is a uh, what's ugh, fuck what's it called? Oh, they, Full Metal Jacket. No, they oh. mentioned it in a uh, Park, Parks and Rec. That one that's like uh, they play at the video store. Oh, why well, can't I remember the name of that movie? Actually, oh, yeah, no. I was like, I, I was know. like, oh yeah, know. like this feels like uh, it's not like he like I I've only seen a couple Kubrick movies, but I'm like, I feel like he hasn't done any other comedies, which is he's normally like definitely yeah. serious. Two thousand one's a riot. When he talks <laughs> Although I feel about. like I feel like The Shining has some like should not watch that right before you of, go to bed. <laughs> oh, of like, I feel like Jack Nicholson's performance is kind of like. There's some humor to be found yeah. a bit, but for the most yeah, it's for the most pretty, part, it's, it's yeah dark movie. His material is pretty pretty dark and pretty serious. We were just talking about Eyes Wide Shut. <laughs> yeah, I still don't know what the hell's going on there. <laughs> I haven't seen, seen that. Yeah. Um, other uh, real standouts uh, of this movie is uh, Sellers again as um, three characters as the as the president in particular. Um, so I guess, well, one thing I did want to talk about, and this brings it to mind, are some of the names. Um, we have Premier Kissoff, the Russian, uh, the Russian Premier. Um, we have Buck Turgidson, General Buck Turgidson, <laughs> mm -hmm. which is a male deer, Buck, and um, the Latin root of turgid being, um, being similar to the, the phrasing for erect. So his name is basically Erect Male. Mm. <laughs> um, yep. We have Jack D. Ripper, uh, a slayer of women. Um, we have um, um, the president, who is named um, Merkin Muffley. Merkin. <laughs> Do you guys know what a Merkin is? Yes. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> so that, that name is sort of like a double entendre, of course. Um, There's Major King Kong. Major King, uh, TJ King Kong, yeah. Bakwano, we Who's talked about. The Colonel Bakwano. So good. So yeah, the names the names are pretty great, and uh, and the president um, is kind of also in a way, uh, strangely enough, in this movie, kind of a voice of reason, sort of trying to mitigate yeah. um, this sort of like military uh, military standstill and like complete inflexibility from his generals, but also trying to mitigate. It diplomatically internationally with the USSR, which I thought was kind of an interesting take, especially mm. given the time period. As far as America, yeah, you've got 
63, Kennedy's assassinated. And you've got Johnson. I feel like it's kind of interesting. Although I feel like the president was played as like certainly being reasonable, but also not conveying a sense of urgency you would think yeah. is appropriate for this situation. Well, and the yeah. whole time he's like, well, why is this a thing? And it's like, because that's the plan you signed <laughs> off on. Right. Like, you clearly didn't pay attention that to the fact that, like, you agreed to this particular scenario happening. Yeah, certainly there is an argument for sort of maintaining composure in a very mm -hmm. dire situation. But at the same time, I kept feeling like he was not completely comprehending the gravity of like what was about to happen mm -hmm. or at least not seeming to care because as things play out, you're like, all right, if there is a possibility to save a few people, everyone in that room is going to go in the mine shafts sure. and survive and everyone else is going to be fucked. So well, in a position of power. Ladies. Oh my God. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Which I guess emerges at the end. We're treated to uh, Peter Sellers' third character, uh, Dr. Strangelove, the titular character. He keeps saying uh, my Fuhrer, like when he's talking to the president. Slipping up and saying my Fuhrer. so good. And yeah, he plays uh, in essence like, um, which is pretty similar to what would historically happen. There were, mm -hmm. um, there were plenty of um, former Nazi scientists that were brought over mm -hmm. to the United States to work on Operation Paperclip or to enhance the Rand Corporation. Um, NASA. And NASA, and it just kind of like apply their uh, the developed technologies under the Nazi regime to uh, to U.S. projects and uh, uh, imperialism or adventurism. Um, and he plays it. I think he's a really interesting character because, as we'll cover later, um, I, I think we're largely treated to male characters who are like either either ignorant, um, st stubborn, um, ill-suited, or ill-equipped, or uh, insecure. And all of these things kind of coming together within their characters. But Doctor Strangelove, I think, is kind of like a unique evil presence in the mm -hmm. movie. I mean, especially given that like he's so often depicted with like in within shadow. Um, like a lot of times when they're like discussing things, we see him from a distance. He's in the wheelchair in another corner of the room, just sort of shrouded in darkness mm -hmm. and watching them. Uh, which is why I think it's really interesting at the end of the movie that he has like such gusto to the point that he literally overcomes his own paralysis and stands up. Um, when he's proposing uh, a potential reemergence, like social and institutional reemergence of eugen Nazi eugenics mm. uh, in the fall of the world, and how it's sort of an allegory for when inept and ill equipped and insecure men run the world, it allows an opportunity and perfect, advanta perfect vantage point for uh, genuinely evil forces and genuinely evil ideas and men to slip into power and seize that mm. moment. Which to yeah. me is kind of the the end of the movie. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that whole conversation at the end is like so fascinating when they're just sitting there being like, "What, like a hundred people?" I think is what they say. Could, can like, fit in the mine shaft. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. They, they or for hundred like, years they can survive. Yeah, it's several yeah, yeah. thousand, I think. But but it's like one uh, ten women to every, every man. one man and. That's, like, all the dudes are hung up on, where it's, like, kind of clear that, like, Strangelove is, like, has, like, more of these, like, wheels turning. Oh, yeah. And, like, you can see, like, you know, Turgidson and the president, like, kind of gradually warming up to this idea. Or even the the Russian, uh, Russian yeah. ambassador complimenting him and saying, I think you have a very great idea there, Doctor. Yeah, they, like, keep coming back to, like, the ladies. Like, he's even like, <laughs> oh, well, this would diminish, like, the... Uh, 
I don't what I forget how he the, says the, it. The, like the monogamous sexual the, relationship. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, some things have to be given up to. Mm-hmm. And he, he asks that, and then he's, he waits it with like bated breath with this glint in his eye, like, yeah, really? Are you serious? That'd be. <laughs> And like just that horror of that situation, but presented so comedically, especially when Peter Sellers uh, playing Strange Love is like almost overpowered by like his uh, like obviously he's trying to play it for these folks so that he can frame this uh, this ideology and this eugenics uh, notion um, in a way that sounds appealing to them. But at the same time, you can see him fighting his own like subconscious or repressed like or true nature to the Nazism emerging. Where like what he's saying is so firmly planted in that idea that his hand is literally fighting him, fighting him so that it can do the Heil Hitler salute. Yeah, which is a crazy thing. Which at the beginning there is that whole thing where like the president's basically just worried about like be- like mm-hmm. being Hitler in the history books. Mm-hmm. Right, this goes on. Yes. So it's really interesting. Right, yeah. there was that point. It was like I. I mean, was it Turgidson who was like, I'm questioning why you yeah. think you're worried about, or like why you're worried about your like legacy and history American books people. than the yeah. American right. people. Yeah. yeah. So I do have some, um, some notes on production um, and some, uh, some performance notes, unless anybody else has anything to add before we dive into some of the kind of like bare bones making of the film. I do want to, we, when we were walking here, we were all kind of talking about how Peter Sellers, at least a few of us, felt so familiar, but I don't mm-hmm. actually yeah. know if I've seen him in anything else. He was in the original Pink Panther films, if that helps. Maybe I've seen, like, pictures from that, but, like, yeah, there's, like, he was, he did something with Rod Serling, like, uh, but I don't know if that's huh. a thing I've seen either, but, like, I went through his filmography, and I'm like, God, he seems like such a familiar mm-hmm. presence when he's presented as the, um the mandrake um yeah yeah especially then yeah because i guess that's because it's you know him speaking in his natural uh natural yeah. accent yeah but i'm like i couldn't like i went through the filmography and i was like none of this stuff and name familiar. recognition too i was yeah. like yeah i know who yeah. peter sellers yeah, the is so familiar yeah you're right but he was i mean he's amazing in it and stuff so yeah yeah in all three roles yeah in all three roles um cool so, I mean, I have a couple production notes that I'd like to walk us through that kind of uh, go from uh, where the idea for the film originated and, uh, and how it developed up to uh, its, its, its final days and its original premiere. Um, so I guess I'm going to walk us through some of that. If anybody wants to jump in or make any, uh, make any observations about them, feel free. Um, first and foremost, uh, I have here that uh, basically as the origin of, uh, of the movie and its production – um, interested in and inspired by growing international anxiety surrounding nuclear warfare during the Cold War, uh, director Stanley Kubrick brought the produc- bought the production rights to Peter George's novel Red Alert, which is a deathly serious look at the disastrous potential of the nuclear era. Um, the early working titles for the film included The Edge of Doom, The Balance of Terror, and Dr. Strangelove's Secret Uses of Uranus. <laughs> 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 Which was not used, as we know. Oh, should have been. <laughs> um, in preparation for writing, uh, Kubrick reportedly read up to uh, 50 books published on the Cold War technology and nuclear warfare of the era um, before diving into the film. Um, that at a time when I imagine there weren't all that many books available, so that sounds like maybe all of them. Um, upon beginning to draft the script for the film, both Kubrick and uh, George struggled to maintain the serious tone of the source material as they found themselves often lapsing into laughter while writing. Uh, it was then they decided to include writer and satirist Terry Southern in reshaping the adaptation into a dark comedy. 
So originally the film was going to be like a very serious uh, Cold War nuclear era drama, mm-hmm. uh, but then later took shape into the comedy that it was present, dark comedy that it became, um, largely because the writers themselves were cracking up when approaching this kind of serious material. That's interesting. When co- like when confronting, mm. it then probably was a very real possibility of a mm-hmm. nuclear disaster. Yeah. The human response is to be like, <laughs> "This is actually pretty funny." <laughs> well, just now I had to look up when um, Catch Catch Twenty Two was published because mm-hmm. I'm also just like interested in early to like mid sixties like satire about like war stuff when. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, like, that's, you know, that's still a very real possibility that people are, like, terrified of and, like, worrying about every single day of their lives. It's So it's, like, really interesting. Yeah, definitely. And um, also um, a note about uh, when they started building sets and, and started doing the research for making the film. Um, <clears throat> after having received no assistance from the United States Air Force, Kubrick's production team took uh, to reviewing printed images of B-52 cockpits for set design. Um, using one photograph printed in a British flight magazine, the team was able to so accurately replicate the interior of the then state-of-the-art planes that former U.S. pilots went on to confirm its realism. Hmm. So convincing was the set that the team created that at one point they were concerned that the FBI may launch an inquiry into just how they acquired the information to build the <laughs> That's set. That's interesting. Those well, shots in the bomber were really, really good as you see characters below and above and moving through those spaces. I thought, yeah, all of those scenes were really, really good. And apparently, like, to the nines, accurate representations of the interior of a B-52. Whether or not those are functionally used or displayed, um, like, pretty much all the dials, all the knobs, all the different uh, apparatuses are pretty much in the right place, as as, uh, reported by, like, actual former bomber pilots and uh, U.S. Air Force. Which I feel like other movies that are set in planes don't spend as much time like focusing on the little devices, but I mm-hmm. feel like in this movie you see each flip yeah. of the switch and the codes mm-hmm. and everything, and that like it's such a pivotal part of the movie uh, as far as like miscommunications and why people don't get certain pieces of information. Mm-hmm. And that's interesting that they had nothing to rely on except for this photograph yeah. to get something right that was so important and significant to the thrust of like the plot and how things eventually unfold. I also will say, even even though the outside shots of the plane in the background, you're like, okay, this is <laughs> definitely early. Like, right. I don't even know what the techniques were to get, like, glaciers behind a, pl- like, low-flying right. plane. But the, the shots of the exterior from within the cockpit felt very realistic. Mm-hmm. Um, and the sounds, and I felt like I was in there really with, with them. You know what felt unrealistic? having just a book of their codes of like, yeah, this is exactly what this translates to. I don't know if that actually exists, but I'm like, wouldn't that be something that you would like not keep in a thing that says top secret? <laughs> and they open up all their yeah, packages. Yeah. <laughs> Those things are in a vault in the plane. That says top secret and then it's all. <laughs> I just like, and maybe these do exist, but I just would feel like they would even decode the decoder. You yeah. you would hope. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Actually, that's me hoping. Yeah, it's just like I really hope that this is more complicated than than I think. But you're right, Sam. Especially when they get the like co or the R uh, Operation R or yeah. whatever it's called. Yeah, um, attack wing R. Attack wing R. And then he opens up the 
manila folder that has each person's package and it's yeah. like they just got birthday cards from grandma and like they're like <laughs> passing them out so informally opening them up and seeing what happened like what they're supposed to do it all seems like you would hope that I don't know they've ever either been through this before or at least have some familiarity with what's inside yeah yeah but that's the thing I mean there's you know under the cold war there had never been you know, a nuclear attack. So, I mean, they would just be answering mm -hmm. to orders that would have been prepared for them that they would have had no knowledge of. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of those black box tapes where you just hear, like, these really terrifying things are happening to these pilots, and they're just like, check one, you were flying down, this altitude, this, mm -hmm. you know, just very, like, the regiment of, like, that kind of military. Mm. Yeah. Except for the pilot. <laughs> yeah, except for uh, for Slim Pickens, who we'll get to. Um, and interestingly enough, that and that is his name, by the way. Um yeah, interestingly enough, there's a very specific reason why those sequences uh, stand out in terms of, like, tension versus the humorous tone of the rest of the film. Uh, we'll get to that shortly. Um, but speaking of the, uh, the B-52 footage flying over glaciers and, and, uh, and all that kind of stuff, and speaking of the FBI having rumored to have been uh, involved in uh, overseeing some of the production details and so on, um, the flight crew that was sent to Greenland uh, to capture overhead shots to splice together with the Model B-52's bomb run um, would set out early in the morning in freezing temperatures. Um, and uh, some days the crews would land, and upon unloading, the, the film canisters discovered the film had frozen and shattered within the camera. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. Uh, additionally, one day the crew was forced to land when intercepted by several USAF fighter jets. Um, apparently they had flown over a covert U.S. military installation and were mistaken for Soviet aircraft oh. due to the puzzling lettering on the plane reading Dr. Strangelove. No way! <laughs> That's crazy. So since production had tons of run-ins with the actual Air Force. It did, yeah. It seems as though, uh, yeah, I mean, at the height of, you know, uh, this, the Cold War and, and Soviet paranoia, it really seems as though uh, the ironic thing about a film making a lot of statements about that is that it collided with that in reality quite a few times. <laughs> I'm surprised nobody's ever made like some kind of HBO miniseries or some kind of Netflix thing about the making of of like people making this movie. I feel like I feel like there's a thing that keeps coming up when I check out Doctor Strangelove and IMDb that might be a documentary. Or there's something. a brief like half hour documentary okay. I've seen that kind of explores some of the production and stuff like that. Yeah, uh, it doesn't get too much into that kind of thing. Yeah, pretty yeah. much that's what it is. Mm -hmm. It's like yeah, one it's of the DVD features. Minutes long. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Also, um, as far as the war room goes, an enormous set was built in uh, Shepard and Studios in London, England to create the elaborate war room uh, at the Pentagon. Uh, the large triangular set utilized sparse overhead lighting and its iconic, quote, big board. Um, He's going to see the board! He's going <laughs> to see the big board! Um, required backlighting that nearly caused several fires. Um, over 10 miles of electric <gasps> cables were needed to illuminate the board. Oh my God. And the surface of the large circular table... Um, on the set was covered with green felt. Um, when the set designer huh. questioned this demand, it being a black and white film, Cooper consisted that it would further strengthen the performances as it would resemble a poker table uh, to characters <laughs> gambling with the literal fate of the world. Wow. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> I, yeah, that you war room set all. was super cool. Like, the shots towards the end where you see the ambassador who's backed away from the table mm -hmm. and is, like, about to pull out his, like, camera pocket watch thing... And you just see the triangular angles of the roof, like, coming together. And then you see the huge round circle um, of the negotiation table. And then the long buffet, like, horizontal line of the mm -hmm. long buffet table. I was like, 
dang, this is so cool. And this, yeah, the backlighting. And it's just, yeah. Yeah. The sh- yeah it's well, he's really offering cool. like different types of cigars from different areas. And mm-hmm. I'm like, what fucking war room is this? <laughs> oh, one other really interesting fact that I found out was that um, when uh, when Reagan was first elected in 1980, uh, one of the first questions he had was, show me the war room. At the time, a war room didn't exist. <laughs> Whoa. Well, that's so, so interesting. It made that much of an impact. Well, somebody who began as like a movie actor mm. probably would get his conceptions so, yeah. of how politicians make decisions from major Hollywood movies. He just I like the idea that he just had a bunch of misconceptions about life because he was a movie star and he was like, oh, these things are real, right? And he remained that that uh, apt a president, mm. let's say. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, the film was set for release uh, late into 1963 with an initial test screening scheduled for November 22nd of that year. Oh boy. For those of you who that rings a bell for, was the same day as the Kennedy assassination in Dallas, Texas. This prompted yeah. the delay of the film's release into the following year, um, likely costing it several potential Academy Awards given that it was released in January rather than at the end of the year. Oh, wow. Um, additionally, uh, Major Kong's line regarding the onboard survival kits had to be overdubbed. The original script read, boy, a fella could have a pretty good weekend in Dallas with all this stuff. Which was later amended to Vegas in lieu of the national tragedy. Oh, shit. That's crazy. Which was a total coincidence. Dallas also sounds like a random city to pick for that line. Well, he's a character from Texas. Oh, that's true. Conspiracy. Conspiracy. Shit. Oh, God. (laughs) Jack Ruby, who is it? It's like Nostradamus. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Did the... the this the end of the mind chest that remind anybody of us with like the yeah, movie starting. I was wondering uh-huh. if that was oh I didn't even think of, like, about that foreshadowing connection. To, I hadn't really thought about that. Either. Which is interesting. <laughs> like sixty years in the yeah. making foreshadowing. <laughs> Jordan <laughs> well, Peele's main. Well, it's like I mean Jordan Peele is like obviously someone who's like influenced by like so many genre movies and stuff, you know. Yeah. So even like that teeny little detail wouldn't surprise me if you're like yeah, this like one thing. I was like yeah, of course you added that to your movie. Why not? Is this a, a spoiler? No, not really. No, no, no not really. Still haven't seen it's it. the opening text of the movie. Oh, oh girl, got it, got you it. You gotta it, get it. on that. <laughs> I know, yeah. It's out now, so yeah, yeah, check it out. Yeah. We'll watch The Matrix, you watch us. I will, I will. Oh, boy, yeah. Speed and Point Break. <laughs> These are all movies I've seen. I can't wait to watch all of them again. <laughs> um... Also, one last production note before we move on to some of the performances. Um, in spite of the film's opening text crawl, um, which, again, reassures us that the, uh, the military is seen to whether or not something like this is even actually viable, um, the film led the U.S. military to make crucial and actual changes to policy and procedure to ensure that the events depicted couldn't really occur. I hate everything. I love I it. Hate they everything. go back and like, oh, shit, we do have something that looks like this. All right, let's reverse it. <laughs> I know, that's just like... Oh, oh so cringy. <laughs> Even more horrifying, um, the uh, and this the, this I didn't write down, but I did find out, um, was that uh, the doomsday device proposed in the movie, however improbable, was an idea proposed to the USSR, uh, particularly to Khrushchev. Um, the notion being that they could create uh, a freighter, a large cargo ship that would be loaded with a cache of <laughs> nuclear warheads and a tremendous amount of uranium that would uh, either circle the USSR or be placed in a strategic military uh, position, uh, such that if the USSR was ever attacked, they could detonate it, and it would be enough to literally destroy the world. Jeez. Well... Fortunately, Khrushchev saw that and was like, yeah, no, we're not doing that. (laughs) I hate everything. (laughs) I guess that's a good thing that happened. So uh, it could have... 
However improbable, this movie uh, still rings true as a satire and as a, a horrifying reminder of uh, the world that we live in, which, again, we'll get back to uh, really quickly in themes. Uh, but um, right before then, I do just want to make some notes about the performances. Um, a, note, a couple notes about Peter Sellers. Um, he was actually enlisted by the studio to play multiple roles uh, within the film due to his acclaim in Kubrick's 64 film Lolita. Mm. Um, Sellers was originally Wait, slated... who did he play in Lolita? He played it, uh, for, I don't recall the character's name. Because he's not Humbert, Humbert. No, the German guy. Isn't it the, he, I think it was Doctor something. Yeah. It's the guy that, like, oh. she goes to his house later in yes. the... Okay. I haven't seen it, but I read the book, and that name sounds super familiar. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, they were really floored, and they, they um, demanded, almost demanded that he be in the movie, and he was originally slated to play four characters. <laughs> He's going to play Dr. Strangelove, uh, President Muffley, um, Group Captain Mandrake, and uh, also Major TJ King Kong, the B-52 pilot. Oh, it would have been interesting if he was also like in that other mm-hmm. scene. Yeah. yeah. Well, the reason that, uh, the reported reason that uh, he wasn't uh, wasn't cast in that role ultimately was that Sellers wasn't confident enough in his portrayal of a Texas accent, <laughs> but also sprained his ankle during the shoot, making him unable to navigate the closed quarters cockpit set. Hmm. Oh, okay. Makes sense. I don't know. I thought Slim Pickens' performance was great, so I'm glad he was in it. He's he is really great, and we'll get to why in just a moment. Um, but uh, as far as sellers, he was paid one million dollars, roughly fifty five percent of the film's budget. Wow. Um, Damn! Talk about power. Upon which Kubrick later famously remarked, "I got three for the price of six. <laughs> <laughs> um, sellers improvised the majority of his lines. Um, and had intended to play uh, President Muffley as ill with a cold, but the cast and crew found the interpretation too hilarious and laughed through most of the takes, so it couldn't be... It, could, it almost couldn't be shot, basically. Wow. Huh. Weird. Um, as far as Slim Pickens, uh, who, of course, is uh, Major TJ King Kong, um, he was attached to the project following Sellers' inability uh, to embody the role because of the reasons we've discussed. Uh, John Wayne was also approached for the role. Hmm. Uh, apparently, he sent no response to the proposal. <laughs> um, <laughs> Damn, that's cold. <laughs> um, before the filming began, Kubrick framed uh, the project to Pickens as an action drama, and Pickens played his role under the impression that the film was not satirical. This allowed for a more naturalistic performance that created a sense of urgency and tension throughout the film as a counterbalance to its more absurd satirical elements and performances. Uh, James Earl Jones, a fellow crew member aboard the B-52, initially thought uh, Pickens was method acting and remaining in character offset until realized that's just the guy that he yeah. was. Wasn't he like a rodeo uh, like performer or something? He was in a lot of westerns before this. I don't know about, about that, like, but possibly. Because there's something very natural to that performance, but it's also hilarious because it seems so like on point with what we would think of like that type of person, you know? Yeah. yeah that's which, odd. Which I guess is maybe the strength of Kubrick telling him to play it straight. Yeah. And getting an actor who was already there, you know what I mean? Yeah, because like part of me is like, <laughs> it kind of feels like that person is in the know on what that character's about, but also that's just, some people are just so genuine that way. They're yeah. like, I don't know. It's like, just let them do them <laughs> yeah. and it'll be perfect. Yeah. And Tori, you little... brought up a great point about like, people making speeches he has a speech like turgidson has a speech mm. once they think that they've uh like mm-hmm. managed the situation mm-hmm. and that the apocalypse won't happen 
essentially Ripper's whole conversations to Mandrake are all just posturing speeches. Yep. Those but are I, all fucking amazing. Yeah. 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 But I feel like of the three, I felt like even though uh, his uh, King Kong speech mm-hmm. is pretty stupid, it like feels the most like, all right, you're with everyone in this room. Like I can feel the sense that you feel like the somewhat of the urgency of what's going to happen. Well, that makes and I was that line like, where he's talking about like making sure people of different races knew <laughs> that like, they were included too, mm-hmm. like even more interesting. <laughs> yeah. It's definitely like speech that's bullshit, but like also I can see him <laughs> trying at least to th- create a sense of camaraderie among yeah, them. That's fascinating. Um, just two last character notes here is that, um, or performance notes is that, uh, speaking of kind of being duped into believing the film was more serious than it was for performance's sake, George C. Scott, who gives one of the more comedic performances in the entire film, um, had imagined his role as, uh, General Buck Turgidson as more serious and stern. Uh, Kubrick worked around this by suggesting a, quote, fun and loose take of each of Scott's shots to encourage a more outrageous performance, and then, unbeknownst to Scott, selected the more exaggerated first takes when editing the film. Uh, one instance of this is, uh, is when, um, Scott as Turgidson, um, in an excited rant about the doomsday device takes an unscripted tumble and falls over himself before continuing mm-hmm. with the take. That was, that was not part of the script. That, that just happened. That was such a good moment. <laughs> yes. That's amazing. And that felt like definitely those sort of clowning performances, like him, like tripping, rolling, and then getting up immediately. And I was like, mm, great maneuver. Which like is clearly like. Uh, at least via the history of the movie, was not, like, he didn't plan to make that funny. He fell down and then just picked right back up with the line. And it's naturally hilarious at a time when he thought he was playing a serious role. Wow. (laughs) But because of the editing, that's the shot they chose. Um, He was initially really, uh, really pissed at Kubrick, but then upon viewing the finished film and and finding out that it all worked so cohesively, he regarded it as one of his better roles ever. Wow. I've never seen Patton. Does he play the same role, basically? Um... If it was more a comedy, serious, yes. yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, he's the same kind of like gruff military figure, but mm. um, but definitely not. There's no comedy to be found in Patton. It's right. Very not much very silly about Patton. But I feel yeah. like there's no intro scene where he's like in a room with his secretary, yeah, like... or getting the call about the the nukes uh, being sent while he's on the toilet. And yeah, stuff the like thing that. is, yeah. if I were to watch him in a serious movie do that, I feel like it would get very exhausting. And so I, I maybe I have to see Patton in order to like see George C. Scott yelling in a serious movie, but... Patton is both good and exhausting, I'll yeah. say. So. Yeah. I was like, I don't know if I could handle a whole movie of this that's a serious movie of you just yelling at people. Patton's not a movie I, like, would watch over and over again. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's a once in a while. I'm pretty sure most middle-aged dads have a big bone to pick with that statement. I it's Thursday, it's Patton night. Pretty good. <laughs> GNC's playing Patton, I gotta watch it. Um... Also, uh, Sterling Hayden, who played uh, General Jack D. Ripper, um, was convinced by Kubrick to come out of retirement and grace the screen once again for the role after five years of not having been in any films. Hmm. Um, At one time, he himself was a member of the American Communist Party, making his role as a communist-fearing general even more intense and humorous by juxtaposition. Interesting. That's interesting. So many layers. Yeah. And... um, so that kind of brings me to uh, to what I'd like to close out on, just sort of like one of the one of the th- big themes of the movie, which I think is uh, 
is something that Kubrick was really frustrated about in the initial reception. He thought people uh, the reception was good because people liked it and they thought it was a good satire that was very prescient and very urgent given the social climate and the situation. But he noticed that no one had much to say about the sexual connotations of the movie, which is a huge, huge part mm-hmm. of this movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, in essence, uh, and this is what I meant to get back to, is with, uh, with everything about Jack D. Ripper, his constant references to the zapping of bodily fluids, uh, the power of uh, the bodily fluids essence. Well, I mean, the opening, he notices, he says that he notices he feels weak after having sex and not being fulfilled by it. Like, that's the whole reason this whole fucking crazy delusion comes about. Which is the reason, in the end, that we we subvert presidential uh, presidential structure and institutional structure. It's just one man who ta- who blames Soviet communism for his erectile dysfunction yep. and his sexual insecurity and mm-hmm. launches a war that results in the end of the world. Yeah. So this movie to me is largely about um, masculine fragility, uh, male sexual insecurity. I mean, it's 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 really kind of very present throughout the whole movie. Um, right down from the, to the opening names. shots also of the two planes the opening like, sequence the, the, the B-52 the refueling set to yes. like this very amorous <laughs> music mm-hmm. so that's very phallic we have um, Jack D. Ripper a man whose name is synonymous with uh, a serial killer of women honking these giant phallic cigars mm-hmm. um, he pulls this giant uh, huge chain gun out of his golf bag which is really phallic as well um, we have um, Buck Turgidson, whose name, again, literally means erect male, um, as this sort of blustering, um, pro-military, like, hawkish guy, but who's interested not only in advancing warfare for the sake of, like, military glamour, but also because he wants to get back to his secretary. Yep. Um, and and it's, just so, it's just so densely layered with an observance of how... How much of the world is led by uh, inept and insecure, very like uh, prototypical, like toxic masculinity led individuals, and I think that that ultimately is why I chose it for this this doomsday month because we've covered alien invasion, we've covered a coming comet, uh, we've covered a man sort of retreating into himself and having his own personal apocalypse, we've covered. Um, we just covered uh, last week a zombie uh, apocalypse, but at the end of the day, I think what's gonna what if anything, uh, as history has taught us, might be responsible for the end of the human race, <laughs> is masculine fragility and, uh, and 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 men in power uh, when they're deeply inept, and uh, that is why I think this movie is kind of astonishing for a movie to have come out in 1964 and to be making these kind of very specific. Mm. Um, critiques of of uh, those toxic uh, toxic gendered expectations, um, and I think it's really prescient and it really translates today for a lot of reasons, as I'm, as I'm sure we <laughs> might agree. I this is a thing that I'm going to get into a lot when I eventually write my piece on the fly because I just watched that recently. And has anyone else here seen it besides Dave? Mm-mm. Okay, so I'll watch it again. Okay, it's it's <laughs> fucking amazing. Um, but it's Jeff Goldblum and this this other actor who are like kind of vying for Gina Davis, and like both of them, it's clear that it's just this like male like 
not feeling like up to snuff or mm-hmm. being jealous. The whole reason Jeff Goldblum fucks up the experiment is because he gets drunk and jealous that like Gina Davis is like with someone else. Yeah. And it's just like the whole time I was like, oh my God, this is just about fucking weird dude shit. Yep. Like the whole movie is. There's like gaslighting elements to it. Like mm-hmm. there's so many things that I was like, oh my God, I can't wait to delve into this more because it's fucking fascinating. And especially for, I mean, like that was, I was seventies that that came out. That was sometime in the eighties. Eighties, yeah. I say um, like eighty five. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, yeah, I think I'm thinking of some of the earlier ones too, which also do that. But yeah, like that's the eighties, and you're like, oh, it's cool that you're going into this, but like also a movie from the sixties where that is uh, what people are getting into is also pretty awesome. Nineteen eighty six. Eighty six. Okay, yeah. Um, yeah, because even some of his earlier stuff, like Videodrome, like really goes into that too. It's all fucking fascinating and i as specifically it's interesting watching male film male filmmakers mm-hmm. really delve into that topic what do you guys make of like the only female character in the movie uh she's referred to i don't does she have a name she does i think when i looked her up earlier but it's like it's not even like a funny name like all the other names right, are like right. really humorous like it's a very like basic name that she had i'll i'll find it in a second and my first instinct is to, to suggest that, like, you know, well, obviously that's that's some uh, of, its, of its era, but some problematic yeah. casting. Of course, you know, it doesn't it oh, doesn't yeah. really have a lot of representation. But at the same time, it is it is pretty much exclusively a film about toxic male mm. problems. So it's yeah. it's sort of explored. I think though though representation is important. I think you know it, it's also it, it also benefits the film to just focus on these 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 figures being the cause of destruction. Totally. Well, and that's probably it's how these characters only view women. Yeah. And that as well. Mm. Yeah. It was like, they think about the ratio in the bunker or in the mining shaft, like for every one man, it's going to be 10 women. And it's in this movie of like, I don't know, 50 men or like, right. Maybe 10 characters and like mm-hmm. one woman. Some of her, like when she's on the phone and she's yelling at Turgidson in the bathroom, I thought it was pretty funny. I she she's great. It very well. Yeah. It mm-hmm. was pretty good. Yeah. She just rolls over, picks up the phone. <laughs> just like her stance. Yeah, she's like, she. it felt like she knew exactly the character she was playing. Yeah. Do that. I was like, yeah. I'm with it. She was also uh, early on in the film, before we're introduced to that character, in the one scene that we see her. Um, there's uh, one of the guys in the B-52 looking at a Playboy centerfold spread. That's also that same actress. Oh, interesting. Oh. So it really kind of drives that home quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, and that's the only yeah. female imagery you yeah. have throughout and that whole movie. She's exactly. barely yeah. dressed. The uh-huh. one. Yep. Yeah. And he's on the phone with her when he's in uh, Turgidson's The War Room. He's like, don't worry, honey, I'll make you Mrs. Buck Turgidson soon. <laughs> it's just like, oh, I, I respect don't. you as a human being. Especially Nobody then later that. on when they're just Nobody like, wants oh, that. ten ladies, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Nobody wants to be Mrs. Buck Turgidson. Nope. <laughs> nope. <laughs> That should be the tagline of the movie. Yeah, agreed. <laughs> well, does anybody have any kind of wrap-up thoughts as we uh, as we kind of wind down the episode? Did you find any information on why Kubrick wanted to shoot it in black and white? Um, not really. Other than that, you know that the technology was available, and most of the uh, most of the studio execs were asking him like, "Why not make this in color?" Um, I I don't know why he hasn't really explained. I think it does lend a really interesting juxtaposition to, um its tone as a film like mm-hmm. as a comedy it's 
it's not only in terms of like substance and metaphorically very dark, but it's a very dark film. Mm-hmm. Like there's a lot of a lot of contrast to the black and white that creates an illusion of depth that's mostly darkness. Mm. Um, And there's this, it's got kind of like a noir tone almost, which is really unique in comedy. And I actually Mm. can't think of another comedy that looks like this, even among comedies that are shot in black and white. That's interesting, yeah. I think for me it also adds like another layer of removal. Like it just adds to the parody aspect Mm -hmm. of just like, yes, this is like, there's another artificial layer aside from the like, comedy of it if that makes sense artificial layer but also like the opening uh lines about the air force and you know depictions Mm -hmm. of Mm -hmm. plane whatever it felt like Mm. the opening shots of maybe like war propaganda like in a movie theater or something yeah like there was something classic about that Yeah. yeah um so i couldn't imagine the movie in color i couldn't either no me neither but and especially, yeah, touching on the propaganda thing, it's especially ironic given that this is a film that's so deeply critical of some of the potential gaps in military uh, procedure. Subverts that idea yeah. of pro-military <laughs> propaganda. Yeah. There's cool. also, I think, uh, what's his name? Um, Ripper. He mm-hmm. has this whole thing about talking about... Um, these politicians making decisions when like uh-huh. they don't actually know what's going on and how it should be like him and like other military people making these like decisions. Cause they actually like know what's happening on the ground that I found very interesting. And like when, when he said that I was just like, huh, this is, and then like you do have like a lot of these like fumbling idiot kind of politicians that end up being in charge. Like the, the Russian man who's fucking drunk on the phone right. while the world Dimitri. is about to Dimitri. end. Dimitri. 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 Yeah. Well, and he's with his mistress. One thing I want to say is uh, I had been thinking recently a lot about the military and movies, having recently learned Mm -hmm. that the military funded some action movies recently. And maybe they've been doing this forever. They've been doing it for a while. Okay, I didn't know anything Mm -hmm. about this, the idea that the military will fund parts of movies if they're showcasing particular technology or um, machines or something like new sort of military. Do you know uh, any specific movies? Uh, Captain Bay. In some Captain of Marvel, the Avenger like movies. Huge, almost all the Michael Bay stuff is bankrolled by whoa. the military. Pretty much every Marvel movie. I didn't know that. And I was like, huh. whoa, that's pretty crazy. And then watching a movie like Dr. Strangelove that's like, critiquing the mechanisms of the military and that they have to say like this doesn't mm-hmm. represent any mm-hmm. like realistic depictions of like a war scenario when it sounds like it definitely seems pretty at the time it could have actually happened um i just i think it's so wild how there's this weird relationship between real the real military world and like what's depicted in movies, mm-hmm. which is cr- mm. very scary to me. Um, but, and actually going back to uh, uh, Winter Soldier, that that was an Avengers movie that departed or like was a critique of like military surveillance and that that mm. was an Avengers movie in which I don't know what, you know, certainly I don't think the military funded parts of that movie. I don't know. I was talking to a person we work with about it who knows a lot more about this than I do, but it was 
fascinating. Anyhow. Yeah, that is interesting to think about now that mm. I know it's like Marvel movies. I'm like, oh, do they film like war movies specifically? And it's like, oh no, it's like fucking Marvel. So I was like, hmm. There was a huge Air Force ad campaign tied to Captain Marvel hmm. of like, like we're, oh, ladies, come fuck. join the Air Force. I remember wow. that. Okay, I did see one of those and I was like, oh, it's really weird that this is happening, but didn't really think much past that. That makes a lot more sense. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, um, this this is uh this is us kind of rounding out again the month of uh, June. We discussed uh, Doomsday. Um, we discussed a lot of different uh, different potential endings. A lot of them frightening. A lot of them uh, humorous. Uh, a lot of them somewhere in between. Um, in this movie, I think being they're no all exception. frightening on some level. Yeah. <laughs> um, so though it's been a very heavy month, um, I'd like to lead us out on uh, on just one little note about the movie that is actually kind of interesting. Uh, as we know, if you've watched the movie, um, the film literally ends with the doomsday device being triggered and the world explodes. Um, very heavy ending. And it's set against uh, uh, Vera Lynn's uh, rendition of We'll Meet Again. Yeah. That's which so is, uh, it's a really haunting and really jarring ending. It, I was watching it last night just in preparation again uh, with like several people at the house. And when it got to that point, we were all kind of like laughing and like having conversations like, on top of the movie. But when it finally got to that sequence, we all just kind of shut up and marveled at how like, Stirring an ending it is that this is really the end mm. a nuclear holocaust a nuclear winter the end of the world the film wasn't going to end that way originally the original end of the film and to end it on a lighter note was actually going to be a pie fight <laughs> now the reason that in the war room we have this giant backdrop of like all these Whoa. different plates all these different dishes was because at the end of the movie in the original script there was going to be a giant pie fight among the people in the room and it went on, and they actually filmed it. Um, you can find some stills of it online, although I haven't found any video. Um, but Kubrick thought that, and this is kind of a hilarious hilarious uh, little fact about Kubrick and some framing as far as uh, the kind of person and director that he was. Um, he directed them having this ruckus and very humorous pie fight, but felt they weren't taking it seriously enough. And Ooh. that's why it's not at the end wow. of the movie. Oh. <laughs> But it almost ended with a pie fight, even though it was an allegory for the end of the world. I have a question. Where did the footage of all those nuclear bombs, or like, oh, no, not nuclear bombs per se, but bombs exploding come from? A lot of, they're almost all like nuclear tests. Uh, they're largely from U.S. military uh, military documentation that was um, pretty difficult to get at that time. And actually up until maybe like 10 years ago was pretty difficult to get. Um, they've recently released like a ton of that test footage that you can find online. But at the time, I don't know how they acquired that because I, it would have been very sought after and very hush hush. I thought the creepiest part of that ending was not only the recognition that the world had actually ended, but the fact that we had were watching real footage of mm -hmm. nuclear tests that set up for the very real possibility of this actually happening and would be curious to know how. Yeah. More about how he got a hold of military footage of like these actual tests going off but yeah. damn there's nothing like a mushroom cloud <laughs> <laughs> really puts it all in their perspective I think that really puts a nice bow on the whole month <laughs> there's nothing like a mushroom cloud <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, does anybody have anything they'd like to uh, to recommend or they'd like to uh, plug before we wrap up for the month movie night <laughs> first you chill it then you kill it yep house I think is still it? I don't know. I, I can't think that it's far ahead. July 7th, I believe? Yeah. I cool. don't know what to do for August because um, 
that that'll be like a year. I started uh, last August uh, doing Horror Night, so yeah, I'll have to I'll have to think on that one. Summer corn could play into consideration. Yes, summer it's in August, corn. So it wouldn't have Children come. There we go. Well, yeah, I'm like last year I did the Burning, which I fucking love that movie. It's like such. That was a, a great good, one. Yeah. It's like definitely. Friday the 13th is, like, definitely a great franchise, but, like, The Burning is just, like, a fucking amazing camp horror movie. Texas Chainsaw has so many... I know. Hot. Like, there's so much heat in that movie. I mean, like, people are sweating. You know, you know no, what I you mean. You know what you mean, exactly. Yeah. No, no, I mean, it's... I, <laughs> Texas Chainsaw looks how I feel most of the time right now in Philly, where it's just super humid. I'm like, God, everything is disgusting. And just screaming nonstop. Yeah. Mm-hmm, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, so we'll see. If people have ideas, let me know. I, I feel bad. I like this. I just figured out what I was doing for July today. So, yeah. Texas Chainsaw has so much hot. It has so much hot. So indeed. Much hot. You know what else has so much hot? Our Instagram. Our social yes! media. <laughs> Follow us on Instagram at ButterWithThat, on Twitter at ButterWithThat1, and send us an email, ButterWithThatPodcast at gmail.com. We love getting feedback and emails. And we do have Facebook, too, which we do post stuff oh, yep. yeah, that's sometimes. Right. Yeah. I sometimes do a box office report. Yeah. I like that. Oh, thanks, Tori. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, again, thank you for joining us for this past month. We'll be seeing you next month. But until then, thanks, as always, for listening, and we'll see you next time. Cheerio. Bye. Don't know where, don't know where. <laughs>